Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Symposium Podcast. My name is Alex Apicella. And I'm Martin Ibarra-Ramos. Every week, we invite a member or collaborator of Symposium to curate and present on our show a film for remote viewing. If you follow our Instagram account, at Symposium, and or our Twitter account, at Symposium, you'll be able to keep up with our episodes published every Thursday, along with calls for audience questions and additional content of various forms related to the films that we discuss. Last week, Lee Wen Wong presented for us Michael Showalter's The Big Sick. Uh, she shared a wonderful presentation of the film, and we recommend you check out the episode and the film if you haven't had the chance yet. Next week, Cineposium member Reed Williams will present for us a series of viral videos, so be on the lookout for that next Thursday. For today's episode, we're actually doing something a bit different. Three members of Cineposium, including Michael Mazakane, my co-host Alex, and myself, have curated a series of film adaptations. Each of us have collected a film adapted from a written source. To kick things off, I'd like to invite Mike to present first. The film I'll be programming this week is Daredevil, the 2003 film. Daredevil, the film directed by Mark Steven Johnson, starring Ben Affleck, Jennifer Garner, Colin Farrell, and Michael Clark Duncan, is an underappreciated entry in the modern superhero film adaptation. Released in February 2003 to middling box office results and even worse critical reception, the film would be redeemed among the cult audience a year later with the release of an alternative director's cut upon home release. The director's cut is what I will be programming this week. What makes it noteworthy within the realm of superhero adaptations is it begins a series of films released primarily between 2003 to 2009 that begin to try and more directly remediate the comic book source material beyond basic iconography associated with things like the costume, a practice that culminates with the film adaptation of Watchmen in 2009. It straddles the line between shooting on film and the now dominant full digital production culture that is the norm. The digital post-processing gives the film its distinctive color grading without the heavy stylization and full digital effects work done in a film like Sin City. Johnson, an avowed Daredevil fanboy, and cinematographer Erickson Kaur litter the film with visual homage to comic book panels from a script that pulls bits and pieces from Daredevil comics to form a unique remix narrative for the film. In practice, the film demonstrates the comic book films can be read as intermediate objects, something that is composed of multiple texts and media. In many ways, Daredevil is a proto-version of the contemporary Marvel Studio practice of using the name branding of various comic book storylines for titles, but mixed with dozens of other reference points that reinforce the story that they want to tell. The clearest moments of visual homage can be found at the beginning and end of the film. The film begins with a minute-long tracking shot up the facade of a church, slowly following a trail of blood. The camera finds Matt Murdock, a.k.a. the vigilante Daredevil, clutching a crucifix. This is a recreation of the cover for Daredevil No. 3 by Joe Quesada from the arc Guardian Devil. The film ends quoting dialogue from Guardian Devil as Matt leaps off a rooftop with the final images of the film recreating Casado's cover for Daredevil number one. The plot of the film features moments from various storylines throughout the comics. When Jose Casada begins to have heart trouble in the subway, this is a sequence taken from Daredevil number one, the 1964 version, with Casada in the role of the fixer. 
the key to proving Dante Jackson's innocence is taken from the Marvel Knights Daredevil Spider-Man miniseries. The abbreviated origin section is informed by Frank Miller and John Romita Jr.'s miniseries, Daredevil, The Man Without Fear. The showdown on the rooftops with Bullseye is taken from Daredevil number 181. The film also references moments and texts beyond its core intellectual property. The flaming DD that Ben Urich ignites is an homage to Alex Proyas' 1994 film The Crow, based on a comic book of the same name by James L. Barr. When Bullseye throws shards of stained glass at Daredevil, it is a recreation of a spot from a 2001 Visa commercial featuring Zheng Ziyi. The film's stunt work is indebted to Hong Kong martial arts films in general and features wire choreography from director Chung Yen. The implementation of Hong Kong-style martial arts itself may be a realization of Frank Miller's overall ninjaization of the book during his run. Daredevil is not limited to just recreating and reinforcing the imagery from other texts, but the producers of those texts as well. Throughout the film, names like Colin, Ramita, Miller, Mack, and Bendis are referenced. These are all writers or artists who had influential runs on Daredevil. The character of Father Everett is a reference to Daredevil co-creator Bill Everett. Kevin Smith's appearance as the forensic assistant Kirby is a layered reference both to the King of Comics, Jack Kirby, and to Smith's own time on Daredevil, where he wrote storylines like Guardian Devil. Frank Miller also makes a cameo appearance as the man Bullseye kills to steal his motorcycle, cinematically murdered by one of the key characters from his run. While Daredevil is replete with visual references and creates a sense of fidelity to the source material, the film features some notable departures. The casting of Jennifer Garner in the role of Electra Nachios is a case of typical Hollywood whitewashing. But they also cast Michael Clark Duncan in the role of Wilson Fisk, a.k.a. the Kingpin, a character who in the comics has always been portrayed as a large white man. Despite visual fidelity being a maximum, Colin Farrell is not in a theatrical onesie and instead given a bullseye brand on their forehead, replacing one silly costume for, well, another, if not sillier, costume. Despite their visual differences from the source material, Duncan and Farrell capture the spirit of their characters. Duncan is suitably clever and threatening in the boardroom, as is his bursts of sudden violence. Farrell is fittingly unhinged as Bullseye, acting with an energy not too dissimilar to Jim Carrey in Batman Forever. Daredevil is an example of what good adaptation looks like, the attempt to articulate the spirit of a text and bring it out in a way that fits the medium. Drew Jeffries characterizes the visual practice in Daredevil as, quote, not stylized in such a way that calls attention to its intertextuality. Rather, it simply adds another layer of meaning that enhances the experience of the film for those viewers who are engaged with the comic book history of the character as they are with the film itself. This sort of intertextuality and postmodern viewing pleasure isn't new to film. Quentin Tarantino and film brats of his generation have made it their stock in trade, but it was new to superhero features at the time. It is a practice that would become a hallmark of directors like Zack Snyder and their various comic book adaptations, where a variety of image sources are recontextualized to make something new. The irony of the sense of fidelity Daredevil re creates for the knowledgeable audience is the struggle Johnson had with the studio to get it in there, clashing with 20th Century Fox over allowing the character to even have a costume 
they want to suddenly change that costume color because their fear that the red would confuse audiences with the recent Sam Raimi Spider-Man film. That particular struggle is why the biker bar fight sequence is darker than a Zack Snyder movie, which is to say nothing of the original cut of the film released into theaters. All of this knowledge creates a multifaceted viewing experience with various types of knowledgeable viewers interacting at the same time, which creates new meaning to the opening line of, from Wake Me Up by Evanescence, How Can You See Into My Eyes Like Open Doors? I would now like to invite Alex on to read their programming note. Thank you, Mike. Daredevil is the perfect example of a licensed adaptation, and now we're going to delve into an illicit derivative work. High Tension, also known in the UK as Switchblade Romance, is a 2003 French slasher film of the extreme variety, created by the director-writer duo Alexander Aja and Gregory Lavasseur. Cytoposium has actually programmed another film by this duo before, the 2006 remake of The Hills Have Eyes, which we were very fortunate to have the opportunity to present in a theater before the quarantine went into effect. And while I do love The Hills Have Eyes, High Tension is one of my all-time favorite horror films. To describe the plot in brief, High Tension centers around two best friends, Alex and Marie, who spend a weekend at Alex's house in the French countryside, only to have their stay interrupted by a vicious killer who is played by famous extreme horror actor Philippe Nehon. Nehon features repeatedly in, in director Gaspard Noé's films and unfortunately passed away three weeks ago due to coronavirus complications. Just like The Hills Have Eyes, this is one of those films that you have to see in order to experience. The special makeup and gore effects were all created by Italian artist Giannetto De Rossi, who is a favorite of the late and famous Giallo film director Lucio Fulci. So we have a major international intersection of horror filmmaking going on here. And the international nature of the film only continued to grow as it was picked up by Lionsgate Films for distribution in the United States. At the time, Lionsgate was championing the distribution of torture porn films, releasing High Tension, Rob Zombie's The Devil's Rejects, and Darren Lynn Bowsman's Saw II, all in the same year with Eli Roth's Hostel coming that next January. And so High Tension was successful in the box office despite the significant cuts to content that the MPAA required in order to move it to an R rating from an NC-17 for its U.S. theatrical release. But the film isn't just surrounded in controversy due to extreme violence. There is an issue of illicit adaptation. When screened at the Sundance Film Festival, audience members noticed a striking series of similarities between high tension and best-selling author Dean Koontz's thriller novel, Intensity. When questioned, Aja stated that he had read Intensity and was aware of its similarities to high tension. Koontz, also aware of high tension, was expected to sue, but surprisingly did not, quote, because he found the film so puerile, so disgusting, and so intellectually bankrupt that he didn't want the association with it that would inevitably come if he pursued an action against the filmmaker. <laughs> if you're looking for a novel to read and enjoy crime fiction along the lines of that written by authors Thomas Harris, Dan Brown, Julian Flynn, and Patricia Cornwall, with the overall tone of Stag Larson's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, I'd recommend giving Intensity a read. And if you can stomach the gore, definitely give High Tension a watch. And we'll go to Martin now for his program. Great. Thank you, Alex. And um, I guess I hadn't realized the kind of dark um, tone that's a, a kind of a theme across all of our films. Um, so I, I, I haven't seen High Tension yet. I actually bought it recently at a discount um, library for like two bucks. So I'm like actually really excited to watch it. Um, all right. So first, I'd like to say that the film uh, I've curated for this episode of Adaptations 
um, works a bit differently actually as an adaptation. Um, so the film I'm presenting for you all is Annabelle Comes Home from 2019, directed by Gary Doberman. Now, I'm starting by pointing out that the film works differently as an adaptation because, for starters, um, the film from the films from the Conjuring universe are based on the true case files of paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren. Furthermore, the text I'm referencing as the adapted source is Gerald Brittle's The Demonologist, The Extraordinary Career of Ed and Lorraine Warren. In Brittle's preface to the book, he states that the information the book presents is true. It presents real cases that happened to real people, the majority of which took place in the 1970s. And he goes on to mention that the book only includes cases which were witnessed by ordained clergymen and exorcists, or where, as he puts it, the principles were credible and reliable, and their comments are plainly recorded on tape. Now, before I move forward, I just want to say that I don't intend to make an argument for what our listeners should or should not believe in. I'm highlighting how the film adapts documented information involving spiritual elements to illustrate themes of astonishment and inexplicability tied to supernatural and horrific qualities, and additionally to consider how the film builds upon its adapted material. Um, all this said, I'll actually only be referencing one chapter of Bertel's book, chapter 3, titled Annabelle. The book contains 14 other chapters involving various other cases of the Warrens. To transition into Annabelle Comes Home, it should be noted that the film is third in a series of films specifically dedicated to the famous Annabelle doll. The first two being Annabelle from 2014, directed by John Leonetti, and the second Annabelle Creation from 2017, directed by David Sandberg. Actually, the first film of The Conjuring Universe, James Wan's 2013 film The Conjuring, introduced us to the doll. Uh, Wan's film begins with a scene involving the Annabelle case before it moves on to another case which becomes the plot of the film. The Annabelle chapter of The Demonologist shares what is the full exchange of that scenario um, that we see a glimpse of in the aforementioned opening to The Conjuring between the Warrens and the three individuals who believe they have communicated with a human spirit through the Annabelle doll. Interestingly, the same scenario from the Annabelle case opens several other films within the Conjuring universe, in the 2014 Annabelle and the 2019 Annabelle Comes Home. Each film opens on the same shot and composition, actually, in an extreme close-up of the Annabelle doll. Now, I've decided to focus on Annabelle Comes Home for a couple of reasons. First, for its efficient use of the exchange between the Warrens and the previous owners of the Annabelle doll as an opening setup to the film. Uh, unlike the use of the scenario in The Conjuring, the scene in Annabelle Comes Home plays for only about a minute and addresses what are arguably the main points or lessons uh, the Warrens share in that exchange, which are elaborated on further in The Demonologist and, in fact, are central to all of the cases in the book. And so these points are, first, it was a mistake to acknowledge the doll. By doing so, they gave it permission to infest their lives. Second, the doll was never possessed by a human spirit, but rather used as a conduit by an inhuman demonic spirit. Uh, third, it tricked them, giving them the impression of possession. And fourth and lastly, Lorraine Warren, played by Vera Formiga, says a line which happens to be a direct quote pulled from the demonologist. That is, quote, demonic spirits don't possess things, they possess people, which further emphasizes the point that the spirit really wanted to possess them, not the doll. The scene plays out as a sort of summation of the chapter in Brittle's book, 
expressing its most important points. However, it also sets up the rest of the film by giving us the information we need to understand how to think about the paranormal activity that will ensue. I should also quickly point out another scenario in Annabelle Comes Home that is directly pulled from the demonologist book. From the book, we learn that Ed and Lorraine leave with the doll after the meeting with the concerned victims of paranormal torment, only to find themselves, as Brittle puts it, the object of vicious hatred. Their car stalls and verges on collision several times while they're on the drive home with the doll. Ed and Lorraine eventually throw holy water on the doll, which seems to halt the issue. And in Annabelle Comes Home, similar events play out in which their drive with the doll becomes a dangerous one. So that's just another kind of direct adaptation from the book. Now, the rest of the film is not adapted from the book. Uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren are actually not even the leads of the film, but it, rather it is their daughter, Judy Warren, her babysitter, Mary Ellen, and another friend, Daniela, who we follow through the rest of the film while Ed and Lorraine are away. Um, to summarize the film, the Annabelle doll becomes free, setting off other conduits in the home. There are numerous set pieces in the film involving supernatural activity through use of aesthetics of astonishment, in which the other conduits collected and guarded by the Warrens intend to possess one of the three young women in the home, directly in conversation with the points described by Ed and Lorraine at the start of the film and in The Demonologist. The spirit wants to lure them, trick them, and possess them. What I find fascinating is that this film feels like a hybrid practice of adaptation. It takes documented material and adapts it faithfully on a core level and extends upon that material to set up a more lighthearted, but still scary for some, including myself, um, a haunted house flick. Um, it's in this way a combination of fictional and non-fictional elements well, with what are, for the most part, aesthetics of naturalism and inexplicable, believable supernatural activity, a kind of cinematic horror realism method. Lastly, I'd like to conclude by saying that the Annabelle doll, actually a Raggedy Ann doll, has been indeed secured in a case as seen in the film. I'll provide an image of the real doll via our anchor page and our social media if you're interested in seeing it, as well as a link to Gerald Brittle's The Demonologist for anyone interested in reading more from the book. If you've not seen Annabelle Comes Home, I hope I've interested you in the film. I'd argue it's certainly a fun, scary horror film that has some heartwarming themes to it as well, so enjoy the film. That wraps up our curated presentations. Thank you to everyone who tuned into this episode of our show. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our show on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find the link to our profile page on Anchor in our Instagram bio. And please follow us on Instagram at Cineposium and on Twitter at Cposium if any of you have any questions related to our presentations. Feel free to DM us on either platform and we'll address all questions in our next show. If you're interested in subscribing to our weekly e-newsletter, email us at cineposium.ucla at gmail.com. Thank you all for listening. Until next time, take care, everyone.